Welcome to the Worldwide Bible Class. Pastor Brian Wolf, me there. Pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Death Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas. Come and see us. We're studying the life of Jacob together with Martin Luther. Let's get into it. Now, we are at the place, um, remember that that uh, Jacob has left Laban, and he's traveled down south. Laban's caught up to him. They, He was going to, who knows, do what, but the Lord came to Laban in a dream, said, don't touch Jacob. And now... Laban does all this great hypocritical nonsense to try to gaslight Jacob. That's the term of art, right? To gaslight. So he's trying to, to, to say to him, hey, uh, you've done me wrong when Laban for 20 years has been abusing him. So finally, he says, well, let's put up a pillar and let's make this pillar so that you don't come and hurt me anymore. <laughs> I have to, you know, it's like, it's like the, per it's like, if it's like you have a stalker who then goes to court and files for a um, protective order, something like that. You know, it's just totally backwards. Like I, if, but if that happened, can you imagine if you had someone who was kind of stalking you and they came and put up a protective, you'd be like, fine, that's right. I, that's what I need in the first place. It's great. So, so Jacob's like, great, put up a pillar. Let's put distance between you and me. You're worried about me coming to harm you, even though everything good you have is my hard work, and I've had 20 years of misery, fine. Build up the heap. Let's do it. So uh, so we get to verse 51. So Laban uh, says to Jacob, see this heap and pillar, which I have set between you and me. Oh, sheesh, Laban. This heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness. that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me for harm. Now, notice how uh, Laban says, who's going to harm who? Well, look, uh, you probably want to harm me. So you don't pass over this heap. And I, by the way, I'm not I'm not going to pass over this heap to help you. You're the one running away, so you're not going to get anything good from me. It's totally reversed. I mean, it's an amazing thing how Laban just, his own distorted mind, as if Jacob is the one who's going to harm him. Laban is the one who's chasing him down to destroy him. Oh, boy. Oh, so Luther, he, Laban, repeats the same things and amplifies them in rhetorical fashion. But in the end, he betrays the real reason for such anxious peacemaking after he's poured out such thunderous words against Jacob. He makes no mention of his daughters, but shows that he's afraid that Jacob may devise some evil against him or that his relatives, who may eventually wish to avenge these wrongs, may do so. If I will not pass over, this is a Hebrew way of speaking, if is used instead of that, he, is, um, he means to say, I shall not cross over to you, even if in extreme necessity you have need of a drink of cold water. I shall not be, uh, I shall not be at your side to offer it to you. But if you cross over to me for harm, <laughs> notice how the harm is only on the Jacob side of the agreement. Oh, Laban. It's really something, Laban. Uh, if you come over here for harm, uh, this heap and pillar will punish you. Conscious of the evil in himself, he fears all things safe, trusts no one, and yet extols himself under the name and title of religion and treaty. So this is the, I mean, this is the the, the, hypocrit the hypocritical stance, right? Conscious of the evil of himself, he fears all things safe. This is that, that bad conscience, the uh, 
that, that makes makes the world seem like a frightful place and and everything seemed like a dangerous evil etc etc um Uh, let's see, Lee uh, is giving the NASB, this heap is a witness, the pillar is a witness, I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, you will not pass by this heap and pillar me for harm, huh, they have harm in there twice I have to, I'll have to check the Hebrew, but I can't check Lee, I can't check the Hebrew live because then you guys will be like, oh Pastor Wolfmiller seems like he's forgotten most of the Hebrew that he used to know you could just assume that's the case without actually seeing me demonstrate so I'll have to check that later uh he trusts no one. He extols himself under the name and title of religion and treaty. So he's making, he's trying to, making himself look good. Here, the whole thing. Oh, Laban. Oh. All right. But in reality, this trepidation and terror is the greatest, is the greatest punishment of the hypocrites and the ungodly. Now, what does, what does Luther mean by this? That, that, that the, oh, I made this smaller than it was supposed to be. That um, well, he's been talking about this actually a little bit uh, as we've been going through, but that this this never being comfortable in life, never feeling sure, never knowing who's friend or foe, uh, this the, the 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 catastrophe of a dirty conscience is itself punishment. There's nothing better than a clean conscience. Can you imagine if there was a store like the Good Feet store? If there was like the Good Conscience store, how much would you, how much would you go and pay for a Good Conscience? I mean, it's it's like that. The value of that, of of knowing that God will welcome you into eternal life, to, of knowing that God is not mad, and that He's put you in this life to do these things that you're doing, and that these things are good things. It's a it's an amazing thing, but if you don't have that good conscience, the whole world seems like it's out to get you, and that is, Luther says, the punishment of hypocrites and the ungodly. So we're trying to live in every way with an upright heart, open, uh, um, honest, true, so that our conscience can rest and be quiet. And we'll remember that the conscience is good in two ways. The conscience is good, first of all, before God. Um, <clears throat> let me draw. Let me do a, a little whiteboard here. The conscience is good before God by faith, and it's good before it's good before the man by works. So our conscience is directed in two different ways: um, the neighbor and towards God. And remember the the beautiful prayer that Luther composed for us to pray after the Lord's Supper. He says, um, "May by this gift." that I might have faith increased in faith toward thee and fervent love toward one another. That this is our life in faith toward God and love towards the other. And the result is a good conscience. So faith delivers a good conscience before God and love delivers a good conscience before the other. So how do I, how do I know that I'm, I'm ready to stand before God and be judged? Well, because I trust in, in Christ and the blood of Jesus covers all of my sins and that's a holy conscience that's a conscience made clean by the blood of jesus and how do i know how do i have a good conscience before you all and before my family and before um and before my neighbor well that's my office of love 
And that has to do, and that love has to do with two things. It has to do with, um, and this may be with faith as well, but that, that love is rightly ordered. And so that has to do with office and vocation and that that love is acted upon. So remember that, I, don't, I didn't intend to go down this rabbit hole, but re remember how in the beginning um, the earth was uh, chaotic and void. So it was, it was, it was, uh, it was unstruck, it was disordered and it was empty. And our love is ordered and full so that, so that, and it chiefly it's the ordering of the love that gives us a good conscience. So that, so I can know that the thing that I'm doing, what do I mean by that? The thing that I'm doing is appointed by God. So that when I teach or when I preach, I know that that is a rightly ordered act of love because God has called me to be a pastor. When I care for my children or do work for the family or whatever, I know that that is, it's rightly ordered because it's according to vocation. Now in that vocation, I sin all the time. I'll say something wrong or I'll be lazy or I'll neglect my prayers or I'll do something that I shouldn't do or fail to do something that I should do. So I'm sinning in the office, but it's the it's the office that is the chief shape of our love to the other, which gives us a good conscience. So I can have a good conscience toward God by faith and I have a good conscience towards my neighbor because I say, well, no, it's right for me to be Carrie's husband and Hannah and Andrew and Daniel and Isaac's father and the neighbors to the people on either side and a pastor to the people at St. Paul and JDLC. And that even this is a rightly ordered thing to do, to, to sit and teach because God has called me into the office of teaching, so forth and so on. So that even as I'm going about the business, I have a good conscience that this is what God has called me to do. Does that, hopefully that makes sense. So, so the good, we have good, we have a good conscience in two ways, faith toward God and in love toward one another. Now, the opposite of that, if you have a bad conscience because you because you both don't have faith, let's put a bad conscience here, you lack faith in God, and maybe you're, how, how do people normally try to have a good conscience before God is by works, and that doesn't work. <clears throat> and then the good conscience towards the other by, you know, this is the, this is the problem, is that instead of trying to serve others, we want others to serve us, so it becomes a matter of power. Whenever I'm treating the other according to power and not according to service, and now that destroys a good conscience, gives an evil, wicked, dirty, unclean conscience, and then it makes everything, it makes everything unclear, uncertain, uh, unholy, wicked all around. That's the that is the result of it. It's, a, uh, it's kind of an amazing thing. So, so there you go. Uh questions about that let me know i'm going to delete it and keep moving because it, i want to get to some angel stuff let's see if i can get fa go faster uh because we've covered this conscience quite a bit right so you guys are thinking we've you know we've covered the conscience last few weeks well he's going to talk a little more about it in reality this trepidation and terror is the greatest punishment for hypocrites and ungodly an evil conscience cannot rest or be quiet it's like a little dog in German, called remorse. If it is quiet in life, I don't know what that means. Uh, I gotta see another page. Uh, 
it's quiet in life and nevertheless present all the time of death and barks a yapping the bad conscience is like a is like the yappy dog like the purse dog like the little rat dog you know the you know what i'm talking about yep 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 yep, yep. that's the, that's the bad conscience it never rests now jacob uh and, and also especially at death is when it really kicks in oh boy it's amazing um uh, now, Jacob had the best and surest testimony of conscience. Even by the silent testimony of Laban himself. So even Laban's, the things that he's saying are showing how Jacob had a good conscience. Uh, but Laban is conscious of the wrongs and treachery he committed against his son-in-law in return for his great services and by which he increased his property. For he was not, he was content with small wages. He allowed himself to be sent away empty-handed. Therefore, Laban thinks, what if he causes trouble some time with his friends, mindful of this wrong, and seeks to get back from me what remains due of his inheritance and wages? What if, what if Jacob wants to punish me for all the wrong that I've done to him? He, Laban, wants to fortify himself so that he should not cross over and cause confusion and trouble. But if she should return to his former servitude and misery, he would bear it more easily. But I shall not cross over to you, he says. I shall not come to you or be enriched or benefited by you as you have come to me. So Laban, the hypocrite, sets up this false, this treaty with all this false piety. Verse 53, Laban says, and here's his false, his religious hypocrisy coming up. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between them. So he says, uh, so he, he wants to make this religious. So he refers to Abraham and Abraham's father, Nahor. Now, this is probably the descendants of Laban. So he's he's pressing back to their common heritage. The problem is their common heritage back then is idolatry. Because God called Abraham out of idolatry into the worship of the true faith. So, so Laban, in his attempt to make things sanctified, actually makes them even more blasphemous. Uh, Frank says, I, it, uh, that hypocritical behavior is true today. If you want to know what a politician is doing behind the scenes, listen to what he accuses the other side of doing. That's that dirty window of the conscience thing where you start to see yourself reflected on everybody else because the, the, if the dirtier the window goes, the, the more it becomes like a mirror. Uh, here's a note just to me it says, if we have a troubled conscience, is it always the result of lack of faith or of love for the neighbor? It could be, well, I think I'll give it a clean answer. Yes, I think that's how the conscience gets troubled. Now, there might be a third option, which is um, the conscience gets troubled over not sin. You can have a falsely troubled conscience. And that's the result of the dissonance created when we live in a moral structure that doesn't line up with God's law. Uh, I bet that needs explanation. Here's the, let's, let's try it like this. There are, if I, let me see if I can remember this list. So you guys will have to bear with me a little bit. There are through four things the conscience knows. Okay. One is my sin. I bet this, I bet this doesn't, this green doesn't work so good. Let me get a darker color. 
Uh, fourth, oh, so here's a list. Four things the conscience knows. One, my sin to others. And I put here also, so other people and also to God. So that we, the conscience knows my sin. And that's the others, that would be a lack of love. And I suppose also a lack of love for God. But the solution here is going to be faith. So this is where faith comes in. The result of this is guilt. The, the second thing the conscience knows is um, others' sins towards me. And that is an interesting thing because our conscience is often much more sensitized to this than it is to this. So I really feel that when someone sins against me, you, you know, I if someone's talking bad about me, if I'm talking bad about someone else, I hardly even think about it. It's terrible. Now, this is probably shame, casually. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to call it shame, not in that the difference between guilt and shame here is just a heuristic. It's not a technical use of the term shame. Um, so if so, if you have a better word, but this is the result of being sinned against others against me. And, and it's a really interesting thing because again, what do we, we know really kind of in a profound way, what to do with, with guilt that's forgiven, but what do we do with shame? How can I forgive the sin that I didn't, or be forgiven of the sin that I didn't commit. Shame is where we have the language of covering in the Bible. I know also the sin of others against others, the sin that I observe, the sin that I'm a witness to. And this is the, remember, this is Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This has to do a. Um, uh, this ha this has to do with uncleanness. Pastor Jernander says you could buy volume sales order volume two and get an article that I wrote. You can find that article for free on the website. So if you search Wolf Mueller conscience on the internet, an article that I wrote kind of has a bunch of lists like this will come up, and then. There's a fourth thing that the conscience knows, and that's just that something's wrong in the world. It's this general sense of that things are not how they're supposed to be. This is that's unease, and this is um, some of the philosophers talk about this. This this is the result, but this is uh, this is the kind of end thing. And but the good so so the good conscience comes especially. It's this number one, and then that, if I have a good conscience here by faith and love, then it lets me enter into the world and into conflict of others and to into my own relationships and into the world. It lets me enter into it as a, in a helpful way. So this is the place where the Lord deals with us first by, with our own sin. This is why we the first thing we do when we come to church is confess our sins. Now, there's, if we want another list, you guys got it? I'm going to give you another list. And that is the four ways that the conscience can be wrong. So this is the four things the conscience knows. But the, um, 
the, I think I think there's another list. I've just as top of my head trying to remember this. Um it there's uh so there's guilt over sin. And this is right. A note came to me says shalom is applicable for the to the four levels of the conscious. I think so. I think but yeah, this is exactly right. So shalom and especially peace in the sense of completeness addresses all four of these ways, these directions. Well, because remember, I mean, the, the the four kind of directions of our humanity, if we're here, it's God, other people, myself, and creation. And in the fall, all four of those, all four of those relationships or whatever they are, all four of those connections are broken or confounded. But there's that that shalom has the idea of all four of those being restored. So I think that's exactly right. So to God by faith, to the neighbor by love, to the self by repentance, and to the world by service. That's that restoration. Okay, so, so we know guilt over sin. Let's see if I can have the list here. Uh, yes, guilt over sin. We can have no guilt. This is the way the conscience is bad. Okay, so how do you get a bad conscience? Now, this is a bad conscience that's supposed to be bad. But you can get a bad conscience in ways it's not supposed to be bad. So no guilt over sin. That's the hardened conscience. Oh, man. So I sin, but I don't feel the, I don't feel the guilt of it. That's bad. You can also have guilt over no sin. That's the conscience that is, um, oh, what do we, the uh, scrupulosity, or e or or even you, you can get this kind of deal is that the this is when the moral standard I mentioned this before the moral standard of the culture does not match the moral standard of God. So so as just an example, like uh, uh, carbon credits. Right there, there is no carbon credit commandment of God uh, that that requires us to, you know, not drive a diesel truck or whatever. But now we have a moral imperative from the environmentalist movement. So if I if I if I have a fireplace in my backyard, I'm supposed to feel guilty about the carbon or whatever. Now that I feel guilty over something that's that's not a sin or the other. Uh, Oliver mentions vaccine mandates. This, this is a kind of, you're you're applying a standard that God has not applied, and then and making it. And the the great danger is not that I feel guilty for something I shouldn't feel guilty of. That is true. But on the other hand, the danger is I feel righteous about something I'm not authorized to feel righteous about. So I use the different standard of the culture to make myself to self justify and to appease my own conscience against my own sin. I remember Dr. Klein would tell the story about a man who a middle-aged man who was cheating on his wife and bought an electric car. In other words, he's committing adultery, but he's serving the environment and he and he displaces his guilt and in the conscience. That that get that kind of nonsense. No guilt over sin. And um uh and that or guilt over things that are not sin. And then the fourth, this is the psychopathic conscience, which is no, it's really the kind of no functioning conscience at all. And that's, it's a rare, but it's a thing that there's, you can even diagnose. Um, 
that there's no conscience that's working. So, so those are the four ways to have a bad conscience. Now, now this first one is bad in a good way. <clears throat> in other words, like when the, yesterday I was driving and my my car, my gas tank fuel indicator came on and said, you're about to run out of gas. Now that was bad, but it was good that I knew it. <laughs> like it's, if you have a, you know, you have your speedometer or you, it's like you have a car alarm. It's bad if the alarm is going off, but it's good if it's going off because someone's trying to break into your car. Does that make sense? In other words, it's a, it's, this is what, this is the same kind of thing with pain. Like if you put your hand in fire, it hurts, but it's good that it hurts because it makes you pull your hand out. So, so the bad conscience of guilt over sin is a functioning, working conscience. It's why we have a conscience. It, it sounds the alarm when we sin against God and against the neighbor. Now, here is a bad conscience in the sense of a busted conscience. It's not functioning like it's supposed to. It's a hardened, no guilt over sin. Through repetitive sin and through demonic deception, we don't feel bad when we do something wrong. And all of us have a degree of that functioning in our own conscience. Also, guilt over no sin. This is where the standards of the conscience have been reshaped by something that's uh, that's uh, not according to God's law. And then this is also kind of a diagnosable circumstance. Okay, I hope that that's a long way to answer the question. If you do, if you just go to the um, if you go to wolfmuller.co and in the search bar, search conscience. Uh, uh, this kind of will come up with some further explanation um <clears throat> pastor journey says that with myself the world and thee i ere i sleep at peace may be i'll praise to thee my god this night this is really great all praise to thee that with myself so let's see if i can we can tag all of these that with myself the world and thee we could add one more to one another, but let's just include the world with our neighbor. That with myself, the world, my neighbor, and thee, I ere I sleep, at peace may be. Uh, a note to me says, you're one of those crazy people who drives on the fumes. Answer, yes. You know, I, I have this, the bad thing about my car is it tells me how many miles I have left. And so I can see, it said, I think it said six miles left. And then it won't tell you after that, though. It shuts down and says, get gas. So I'm like, come on. Do I have one mile? A half mile? I need more granular information. Um, a couple of you said they found the article. If someone finds the article, in fact, if you, if someone told me they found the article, if you post the link up there in the chat, that'd be great. You guys can notice. Uh, I've noted that the conscience, Oliver says, I've noted that the conscience and faith are, in a sense, more fragile and stronger than we think. Uh, I, you, that's good. That, that's that's art that's artistic, Oliver, and that I can see your artistry coming out because we we see it in the middle, but it has edges, and the conscience lives on the edge, and that is uh, that is right. Okay, uh, which bad conscience did Luther suffer from before reading Romans? He had uh intense scrupulosity so it was probably uh, intensified guilt over sin and which led bled over into into guilt over things which are not sin uh and um 
so that Stalpitz would say, go commit a real sin. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the advice that you have. You give to someone with scrupulosity. Okay, back to Luther. How do you guys stall me so much? Whoa. 934, okay. Uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers, judge between us. So here Laban, back to his false piety. Hopefully you guys can see what I'm looking at, the scripture and uh, Luther commentary here. Uh, how can that rascal Laban make things so hot? With his thunder, as it were, he tries to terrify the saintly man and disgrace him as an unrighteous and ungodly scoundrel, but to display his own positively angelic holiness. That This is the this, this strategy. But he's taking the name of the Lord in vain. This garrulity, garrulity. I looked up this word, by the way. It means excessive use of words. <laughs> it is. Here's the here's the sign for this in sign language. <laughs> just flapping the tongue. It's not a real sign. It's just a kind of slang. Oh yeah, just this garrulity. That's what that's what that means. <laughs> How can it? Uh, uh, oh yeah. Garrulity betrays the heart of the hypocrites and their contemptible malevolence. According to the statement in Proverbs, where words are many, there is frequently penury. I don't even I didn't even look that one up. That's something. Laban, however, understands the God of his father to be one Terah and Abraham worshipped when he was still an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees. He, Laban, is referring to the idolatry of his father, which he mentions is uh, which mention is made of in Joshua 24, 2. Your fathers lived of old beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, of, of Nahor, and there they served other gods. So that he doesn't even realize that he's being idolatrous. Up to here, then, we have the picture of image of a hypocrite and idolater. Who pretends everything and takes the name of God in vain. But even we have heard only the empty sound of words in the hypocrite. So, on the other hand, Jacob pays attention to brevity. He's full of godliness and excellent things. Therefore, he attends to everything with very few words. For he had previously reproached Laban heavily enough. But because he perseveres in his smugness, this is he, Laban, perseveres in his smugness, pride, and ungodliness, uh, Jacob lets him go. For the hypocrite prattles nothing else but blasphemies against God and revilings against the righteous and saintly Jacob. Okay, we're getting there. I'm pressing forward. Verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now notice this. Uh, the, the, the promise that Laban makes is the God of Abraham and Nahor. The God that the promise that Jacob makes is the fear of Isaac. And that is really important. Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. He called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and tarried all night on the mountain. And this for Jacob now is a celebration. I'm finally going to be done. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And he departed and returned home. Jacob does not swear by the God of Nahor or Terah. But he swears by a God who is closer, that is, by the God whom his father fears and worships, by Christ. If you want more on this, back two weeks ago, we talked a lot about how the fear of Isaac is Jesus. 
according to the commandments and promises of God. Commands and promises, law and gospel. This is, this is what derives the true worship because it is repentance and faith in of, uh, of Jacob here. For hypocrites also serve God, but by the commandments and traditions of men. So the contrast here, this is an amazing thing. You, you can contrast the law and the gospel, which is what we do a lot. We're big on this distinction between law and gospel. But note here that the contrast that Luther is making is between law and gospel versus commandments and traditions of men. That's where the, that's where the contrast is to be seen. We have God's commands, you have man's commands. You have we have God's promises, you have man's traditions. And so it's the here is the here's the contrast is between of God and of men. Of God and of men. And in, in some ways, that's the ec extreme conflict of the Reformation. One of the reasons why it frustrates me so much. Ooh, who went to visit? Austin yesterday, the person, not the place. Uh, and we were talking about Catholicism and and I have to sit there and try not to get worked up because, because the Catholic apologists always make this claim, oh, you Lutherans, you follow a man, whereas we follow God. Well, that's the whole fight of the Reformation. You are following a man, the Pope. It's the it's the whole point of Catholicism, is that you follow a man. Unless you're subject to the Pope, you cannot be saved. This, that, is, that is man following. Anyway, sorry. So we notice that here. As Isaiah and Christ say, uh, so we're looking at Isaiah 29 and Matthew 15. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. No one comes Closer to God with the lips. No one employs the name of God more frequently than hypocrites. But God proclaims that their worship is idolatrous. Indeed, I hear my name, he says. I'm called creator of heaven and earth by them, but contrary to the second commandment. For they do not call they do not call me so from the heart. No, they corrupt their worship by the commands of men. And so the, the distinction between the word of God versus the word of man is also the distinction of the of the lip to the heart. So man's traditions are on the lips, God's commands are on the heart. And when uh, and when uh, the scriptures are talking about fear, this is what they're talking about. There's no it's not fear if you're just saying it. If fear means that it's it's happening in the heart, that's what the heart the heart fears. The lips don't fear. The heart fears. I suppose sometimes the heart fears in such a way that the lips ah reflect that fear. But when it says you, the fear of the Lord, it's not just the acknowledgement of God. It's something more that's going on. They ask of me righteous judgments, says Isaiah 58. They delight to draw near to God. I do not want to be worshipped with human acts of worship and, and, and doctrines. That's the point. The, for, of man. But in the fear of myself, that is that you may embrace my word in faith. So it's faith that is happening in the heart. So that fear is because fear is an act of the heart. Trust is an act of the heart. Love is an act of the heart. That that this is not just what's happening in the lips, but faith can, I mean, faith is confessed because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
but it is this act of the heart which knows that God is good and he's good for me. He's good to me, with me. He loves me. Okay, now, uh, as stated in the last chapter of Isaiah 62, to whom shall I look if not to him who's humble and contrite in spirit? So here again, th and this is actually a, a really beautiful uh, text that Luther picks to, to drive the point home because uh, contrite in spirit, in other words, that's in the heart. It's not just external, it's internal, who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles, and that's the word fear, at my word. So our fear is not directed anywhere else but to God's word. And he and Luther's going to make that point. But, but by them I want to be worshipped. That, in fact, is worship. That in the spirit, the Lord's word has its effect. Isaiah 8. I mean, this is all Isaiah. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become your sanctification. Isaiah, at some point, Luther even says, he, and I might have missed it, or he's about to say it, that when Isaiah talks about the fear of the Lord, he's talking, he's commenting on this text from Genesis chapter one, the fear of, the fear of Isaac. If Christ then is to be our fear, that is, when he should be worshipped by us, it is necessary that we have the word and promise of God. We, we cannot fear God apart from his word, from his commands, and his promise. Now, the necessity of the promise for the fear of the Lord is really important because we... Uh, let me get a little more Luther and I'll explain this. Such fear or dread is true worship. So fear, dread, is true worship. Why? Because it's the heart that fears, not the lips. Not the. It's not this kind of formal, rational, mental thing. It's in, of, it's of the heart, which brings it to pass that we despise all other dreads and terrors. As Isaiah says, do not fear what they fear or be in dread, but the Lord your God you shall regard as holy. So that so that this here, I don't, I want to, I want to kind of highlight this like 20 times, that the true fear of God, the true worship of God, is that we despise all other dreads and terrors. So that the fear of God is an exclusive fear. It's a casting out of other fears. When, this, when the Lord says, fear me, he's not saying, okay, here's how maybe I used to, I used to think of it. I, I, when, when, Luther expounds the first commandment for us in this way. And he says, we should fear love and trust in God above all things. I said, okay, here's me, here's God. And the thing that should happen between me and God is fear and love and trust. That's not, though, what Luther was saying. What Luther was saying was that, that, that you have a fearing and loving and trusting heart. It's what the heart does. Your heart is going to fear something. And it's going to love something. And it's going to trust something. What's it gonna? What is the object of these three acts of the heart? And the first commandment says, "God." So that this is so that the the point is not that the the, the question mark. Okay, here's how I used to think of it. It's like here's me, 
and here's God and what's in the middle? Like, what should I do here? And the answer is fear, love, and trust. That's that's how I use it. No, that's not right. That's not how it goes. It's that you're already you're already fearing and loving and trusting. The question mark is what? Who are you fearing, loving, and trusting? And the commandment says that should be God, and that's worship. And that means that all the other things that I want to fear are excluded. All the other things that I'm tempted to fear are cut off. And what are those things? I don't know. You, I suppose we all have our own thing. There's death over here, or sickness, or pain. Nope, not authorized. Or the devil. Maybe I want to be afraid of the devil. Nope, not authorized. It's this exclusive nature of the fear of God that be, that this no, that your fear is directed is directed right here, and that and and so also your love and your trust just to, is just to God. Now, the nature of the exclusiveness of our fear is different than our love and our trust, um, because. Our, we are commanded to love God and to love our neighbor so that the, our love for God does not exclude our love for the neighbor so that the, the constraints of love are different than the constraints of fear. But look at, but that's maybe for another time because look at, but because here with fear, look at how Luther says it. What, look at how Isaiah says it. Do not fear what they fear. Don't be in dread. If you fear the Lord, you're not fearing these other things. He, the Lord, will protect you well. You must consider that he is to be feared, revered, worshipped, who speaks with you. If you do this, then I, the Lord, will be your fear, he says. For you have a certain firm word. When you retain it, you will not err in your divine worship. So how can I let go of the fear of all of these other things only by the word of God and the promise of God? How can I not be afraid to die? Because Jesus says, don't be afraid, I've overcome death. How can I not be afraid of the devil? Because Jesus says, for this reason, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. I saw Satan fall like lightning. How can we not be afraid of sickness? The Lord says, I'm the good physician, and I will carry you through all the troubles of this life to life eternal. How can we not be afraid of these things? So we set the word and promise of God against all the things that tempt us to fear. And in that, we, we hold on, our fear holds on to Jesus and Jesus alone, and that is true worship. Make sense? In this manner, Isaiah understood this. Oh, yeah, here it is. This is amazing. In this manner, Isaiah understood this passage. What passage? Genesis 31. So we see we see Isaiah commenting on, on Genesis when he calls God our dread or fear, namely on account of the worship which is offered to God according to his precepts and promises, not only with the lips externally, as the hypocrites fear and worship, without the word and on the basis of the commandments of men. Jacob accordingly sacrifices with this faith and confession, which a hypocrite, uh, which a hypocrite, where did I go? Mm -hmm. Which a hypocrite does not do. It seems to the latter that he is too good and too holy to have need of making a sacrifice and invocation to God, for he justifies his iniquities. That's the, that is the, the work of the hypocrite is to self-justify. But Jacob gives thanks to God. He sacrifices and prepares a banquet, which was required for a sacrifice. He calls his friends together and undoubtedly preaches a sermon here. Laban paid no attention to the sacrifice, although perhaps he joined the others in the banquet. 
<laughs> See, Luther says, well, Laban didn't listen to the sermon of Jacob. He probably went for the wine. But Jacob praises God, the fear of his father. That is Christ, because he was liberated from the scoundrel. When the banquet was over, Laban departed. We are now rid of that miserable rascal. Here's it. Here, uh, let's. I think we can do it. Get to the end of the of the chapter here. Before he departs, the hypocrite kisses his sons and daughters, not with paternal love and affection, but with a certain show of humanity and attachment, observed for fashion's sake. It's just more hypocrisy in the customs and conventions of all the nations. For he dismisses them without any remuneration. In other words, he knows it's a hypocrite because he doesn't give them a gift. Uh, he takes his leave of them in words, but inwardly in his heart, he nourishes ill will and the most bitter hatred in which he cannot even refrain from begrudging them the things which they had acquired by God's blessing and without his gift. These then are two contrary pictures, that of a most cruel hypocrite who sins without end and is an example of all crimes, idolatry, hypocrisy, avarice, and final impenitence. And that, that's Laban, and that of an excellent and saintly man who had a conflict on his hands for such a long time with a monster of this kind. Now, now we get to chapter 32. Jacob went on his, way, on his way and the angels of God met him. This is what I wanted to talk about today, but alas, alas. Okay, so that'll be not next week. Uh, next week's Ash Wednesday, and we have a service at 10 o'clock at the Deaf Church. So you can join us for that. But we won't have Worldwide Bible Class next week, so we'll we'll skip Ash Wednesday, uh, and we'll be back after it in in two weeks. Let's let's pray, and then I'll uh, shut down the recording, and we can ask anything and talk about this. Oh Lord, we thank you for your great kindness and love to us in Christ. That you, by your word and promise, cut away all the fears that tempt us, so that we might worship you uh, in the confidence of your great care for us. For we ask this all through Jesus Christ, the fear of Isaac, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.